0: Father, as we will begin today looking at in your scriptures, you tell us that you are the source of everything that's good, and we would acknowledge together as a group of people that at times we believe that, and at other times we look elsewhere because we don't believe we've found what's truly good in you. So we would pray in the next several weeks as we consider what your scriptures say, specifically about where the source of life, where the source of goodness comes from, and then as we consider different aspects of what can draw us away from that, we pray that this start to a new year would bring great spiritual blessings upon us, not because we somehow deserve that or or have earned it, but simply because you're a good God. And so as we've gathered from many different places and backgrounds and some of us in the room are believers and others are not yet, we pray that miraculously you would use your scripture to speak to each of us in a way that would help us to know you more. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Great to be back with you today. We're going to be in John 7 this morning. It'll take us a while to get there, so uh, if you want to go ahead and turn that way, that would be great. We will start in John 7 in just a couple of minutes. I know a lot of you are out of town for the holidays. Welcome back. You survived. Hope it went well. Today we're starting a new series of messages, as uh, Austin referred to. Uh, we'll talk about living water, I'll develop that theme in just a few minutes. Thank you. One of the strongest traits of our church family is our diversity. And praise God that we have a long, long history here at Church on Mill, as some of you know, of unity in the midst of great diversity. There's quite literally people here from all over the world. There are people that are pushing a 100, and others who have not yet reached one. There are folks with PhDs and people who have no idea what that stands for. There are some of us in the room who grew up in Christian homes, and we had parents who taught us from the very earliest age we can remember who God is. And there's others in the room who are atheists, who, as adults, are still exploring do I even believe that a God exists? There's single people and married people, there's people with kids and without, there's even Republicans and Democrats. There's people who like country music, and there's everybody else with real musical taste. There's people with a great deal of wealth, and some of us really aren't sure where our next meal is going to come from. Some of us lived in towns growing up that had more animals than people, and others come from cities of millions. How in the world does this work? Do you recognize how unique this is? Most churches are not this way. And do you realize that it is working? Almost every single week, somebody new that's joining us for the first time will say, I've never felt welcomed like this before. It's working. What's so important and wonderful about this diversity is that the diversity isn't rooted in in sameness we, we don't all look alike. We don't get along because we think the exact same way. What makes this diversity so great is that it's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unity that we share is not our backgrounds, but the gospel. It's the shared belief in the core that the, of the Bible that gives us this unity. While we may disagree about peripheral things, there's certain concepts in the scriptures that bring us together With crystal clarity and absolute agreement, that's what makes this work. For example, what is Christianity? Those of us that are here today as members of Church on Mill, people who have said, I believe in Christ and I pledge my life here to help others grow, we would give the same answer to that question. At its very essence, we would say, here's what the gospel is all about. We would say that it's not principally a set of rules. We would say that it's not chiefly an ethical stance. It's not a social vision for a certain kind of justice. It's not even predominantly a denomination. And it's not just saying, yes, I think that Jesus died and rose again. It is more than all of those things. Christianity is not first and foremost a set of theological principles. It involves that, but it's more than that. As you know, Christianity is God giving his life to us. That is what Christianity is at the very bottom line essence. Christianity is people having the very real experience of being saved by God and given new life in him, right? It's the real immediate connection of life with God. And then because we have that with God, we can share that with each other. This year, as your leaders have been praying and thinking about where God would have us go in our Sunday morning gathering time in the scriptures, we want to spend a lot of time this year talking about how we personally together relate to God. We're going to start off the year for the next two months or so chatting about one of the most common things that keeps us from experiencing God, and that's fear. Many of us experience consistently faith-crippling fear. And so we're going to try and set up that conversation today and then over the next several weeks, six or so, look at specific kinds of fear and what can be done about them. After that, we're planning to go through John 13 to 17. So if you wanted to plan ahead, you could start meeting with a friend and just reading through those several chapters of of John, the book of John. That's what's called the upper room discourse, this evening that the disciples shared before Jesus was arrested It's some of the most intimate teaching in the Bible about what it means to relate to God. And then, Lord willing, maybe in the summer or the fall, we're going to look at certain roles of church leaders and how God places them in the body to help us know God more. So that's where we're headed, and uh, I look forward to sharing the scriptures with you and others in the coming months. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into John. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without guidance. You've not left us without your voice. You've given us the scriptures through which we can hear you. And we're a diverse group of people and we praise you for that. That lends to certainly a sense of complexity among us and yet it magnifies you. Because what brings us together isn't the fact that that we agree about a lot of things, what brings us together is not our shared cultural heritage or our economic background or how much schooling we have. What brings us together is simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that that is a trait you've given this body and that it, as far as I know, has always been that way. We pray as we talk in the series about the very core root of the life you promise us and yet how we can drift away from that in fear fear that you would do something supernatural in us, that you would help us to see the fears that we have, that we might turn from them to you. And we pray even that those maybe today who are with us who don't yet believe in you, that the quality of life that they see in us and the truthfulness of the Scriptures would be helpful to them and that they would come to know you. And we would acknowledge that we're just one little group out of, Many across this valley and the United States and the world who are meeting around your scriptures today, and we would pray your blessings on all of them, that your kingdom would increase. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Before we read John 17, I'd love to um, introduce our newest member of our church family, Roxanne. I have not seen you. Where are you? Come on up. Um, you come. This is, thank you, this is um, Roxanne Beasley, and we don't normally do this to everyone who joins, but I've asked Roxanne if she would come up and read our scripture for today. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Roxanne is originally from Taiwan. She became a Christian uh, there and is specifically here in the United States and has been for the last decade, 12, 13? 23 years. I was close, 23 years. (laughs) And... I had tutors in math and I still nearly failed, and that is true. And she is joining Church on Mill specifically because she serves the international community at ASU and wants to be part of a church family that's close. So those ministries she is in can integrate into her local church family. So uh, I've been deeply encouraged by her story. I hope you'll get to know her and pursue her as your sister in Christ. So Roxanne's going to read. For us, from John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. Okay. Is that correct? Right. Yes. yes. Great.
1: Uh, thank you Give giving me this opportunity. Uh, it's my privilege to use my second language mm. to read it. <laughs> thank you, sister. <laughs> okay.
0: John chapter 7, verse 37
1: to 39. River of living water. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cry out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow a river of living water. Now this he say about the spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified.
0: Thank you. (laughs) In this rather odd passage, Jesus promises the life that we all want, life that's deep and joyful and sustaining and full. And so we want to look at that life today through considering three different words, and we'll try to bulk our time in each of those words. We're going to think about what he has said here because it doesn't make much sense at first glance. Then we're going to consider how that life can be provided. And then if you're still here with me, we will consider but, because there's lots of objections to this. So what What in the world is Jesus even talking about? And then how, how do we get this kind of life? And then but, but I thought my life was going to turn out like this. So today we'll just try to frame this conversation and then in the coming weeks consider specifically the things that can keep this kind of life from happening. Now let's be honest, this is a rather weird passage, is it not? Especially if you're just plopping down into John and you've never heard of this before. I mean words like feast and great day and Jesus saying come to me and drink, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. Waters flowing from our hearts and the Spirit. What is, he, what is he saying? Well, look again at verse 38, for it forms the heart of this passage. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, Jesus promises a particular kind of life to everyone who is his. We'll talk in a few minutes about how to experience that life for itself. But first, let's just reason together about the quality of life that he promises. Jesus says there's a life of peace, a life of meaning, a life of joy, that it's available universally to anyone who would come to him. That means that there's a life in which your sense of identity isn't wrapped up in what other people think about you, whether they like you or whether they reject you. He says there's a kind of life where you can be satisfied even if you wear worn out, dated clothes and live in a tiny apartment with someone you don't like. He said there's a kind of life that exists without dependency upon the shape of your body or the size of your bank account or whether people responded to your latest post on Facebook or whether you're married or single or whether you have your dream job or no job at all. Jesus is, in fact, speaking of a quality of life that's, so beyond what we normally think makes up life itself. He says you can have joy even if you've never met your biological father, even if your body aches with pain every day, even if every month you're reminded of the fact that you're childless. There's life even if you've failed at something big enough that the rest of your life will be impacted by it. That's the claim Jesus is making. It's pretty big, is it not? Jesus says you can possess the ability to sit down on the inside even if everything on the outside is crazy and it's not like you were expecting it to be at all. Jesus, in these few verses, promises peace and satisfaction, joy and meaning. All of that is bound up in those two little words, living water, living water. Now, we are what I have been taught, since living here, desert rats. So we get the picture. Have you ever been out in a Tempe summer and realized I forgot my water? It's not good. We live somewhere that it's hot enough that it's literally dangerous to walk around the block in the summer without a bottle of water. Why? I don't know why we live here. But why? Why? Water is life. Water's sustenance. It's absolutely essential to survival. When you turn on the faucet at home, water cleans your dishes, it cleans your body. It waters your plants, it cleans your house, it renews, it it satisfies. You can't live without it. Jesus uses that image of what physical water provides us physically to say I can give you spiritual water that will provide for you spiritually. Just like you must have physical water to live, spiritually you have to have the Holy Spirit to really live. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the complication, of course, here is he says that rooted in a particular cultural context. And so I want to ask you to give me about 10 minutes to try and explain it. And some of you are history buffs, and the three of you will enjoy this immensely. The rest of you, just tarry with me and I think you'll find this very helpful. The setting that Jesus says this in is what gives it its life. And so if we don't understand it, it's hard to really be grasped by it. If you're new to the Bible or simply don't know this story, thanks for joining us. We're thrilled that you're here. Christianity is a historic religion. You see, it's rooted in actual events that happened to historical people. So much so that this book, the Bible tells us, if the events that claim to have been historical events didn't happen, then you're simply to be pitied for believing it. And so when we read the scriptures, we're reaching not into the stuff of fairy tales. We're, rooting, we're reaching into what we believe actually has happened in history and what we believe will happen in the future. Jesus spoke these words about living water in the city of Jerusalem at a party, an annual celebration called the Feast of Booths. So this is 2000... Okay? How many of you wrote 2014 this week over and over and over again? I did. Reach with me back to the year about 32 A.D. The Jews at that point... We're in Jerusalem now, of course. The Jews at that point have been celebrating the Feast of Booths for hundreds of years. And we can't talk about every component of this, but early in the history of the nation of Israel, God intervened for the Jews in miraculous ways. You can see this in Leviticus chapter 22 if you don't know what I'm talking about. So just jot that down, check it out later. But God told the Jews when he rescued them out of Egypt every year, I want you to get back together and have the Feast of Booths. And here's essentially what would happen. People would gather from all over, come to Jerusalem, eat a bunch of food, pray, sing, enjoy friends and family. It all sounds good up to this point, right? And then they would live in little tents. It turns out camping is actually biblical. So they did lots of other interesting things too. So here's one example, and this is the perhaps oddest thing that they would do during this week-long celebration. The priest, the high priest, every year would come with a, a golden spoon and he would reach down in something called the Pool of Siloam. It still exists today. Here's what it looks like. So down where that dirt is now used to be full of water and up most of those steps was full of water. And there are stories in the Gospels about people who wanted healing who would lay around the outside of this pool. So literally it's still a place you can go to today. So the priest would go to this pool with a whole bunch of other priests behind him and then all the faithful Jews who would gather around and he would scoop up out of this pool a ladle full of living water. And then he would walk through the city up these steps. Next picture. All right, these are the steps up to the temple. The temple is gone, but the steps are still there. So Jesus would have walked up these actual steps, same steps. The priest is walking up with his little scoop of water. People are singing and praising and praying. And then he would go into the temple and pour the water out on the altar. So here's a a humongous uh, model of the city. Did we put that one in there or not? Okay. So those, this is the big building is the temple mound the temple courts and inside is the temple itself. Everybody see what I'm talking about? Those little tiny steps to my left, which you can't hardly make out, are the steps of what's still there. So the priest would go up, he would take his water, he would pour it on the altar, and everyone would say, Woohoo. Actually they would say, I have it quoted. Give thanks to the Lord. In the message it says, Woohoo. And This was repeated every day for a whole week. Every day, the same ritual. Go, you scoop the water, you march through the city, you prayed or sang Psalm 113 to 118, and then you pour out the water. They do it again, again and again for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Longer, if you're a citizen of the United States, longer than our nation has existed. Longer than you can trace back to any of your relatives. The same people have been doing the same thing over and over and over. And Jesus would have grown up as a boy doing this. Jesus would have gone every year and watched this happen. Kind of strange. Now it's in this context that Jesus talks about living water, about a life of peace and satisfaction and meaning and joy. So that's the year 32 AD. Now go back even further, at least another 1,200 years. And if I've really lost you at this point, just check out the book of Exodus. The second book in the Bible will tell you this whole story and a whole lot more. God's people have been caught in Egypt as slaves for centuries. And now God set them free. So they're wandering between Egypt and Israel. And Moses is their leader, and he's teaching them, here's what it means to live as God's people. That's what the book of Exodus is about. They set up tents, and they lived in groups. And in the middle of the camp was what? You might know. You might know this story. In the very middle of all of the little tents was a big tent. And this tent was called the tabernacle. It was positioned strategically in the middle of the camp, as a symbolic way of God saying, I'm the center of your shared life together. I am with you. I'm identifying myself with you. Where you are, I will be. God himself chose to live among his people. That's pretty amazing. Now, you would think that would create a people who are constantly full of joy and peace and happiness and obedience. But if you've read the story, far from it. These were a grumpy, uptight, complaining people. And one particular moment, they were saying, Moses, you've brought us out here in the wilderness to die. We have no food. We have no water. Just send us back where we were slaves. We got lobster and steak there. We'll take that over starving in the wilderness. And so Moses strikes a rock, and out of that rock comes water. And so that historical event is what was celebrated when they got together in Jerusalem around the scooping of the water and the pouring of the water. And so God promised them that they would become a new nation in a new land and the crops would be abundant, their needs would be met, and that people from all over the world would come to draw on God's life from them. So water came to symbolize all of this. I'm almost done if you're getting tired of this. Water came to symbolize all of this. So the priest, when he would scoop the water, it would be saying to all the people, look back. You exist because of God. He has sustained you. When, When you were in the wilderness and you had no food and no water and you were as good as dead, God miraculously provided what you needed for life. And that led you to this beautiful land where you were provided everything you need. And yet you still chose to turn from me and repent, turn from me and repent over and over and over. And so you left that land and you came back and you left that land and you came back. But I was always faithful to you. And yet there's something even more. So now we're looking forward There's this water, this physical water in our past seems to be telling us that God's going to give us spiritual life in our future. And so as the priest would pour that water out, that's what the people were doing. They were celebrating what God did in their past and they were anticipating something coming up. Now with all that in mind, look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, so they've done this for a week. It's the very last time the priest is scooping and pouring for a whole year. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. So imagine this is not Jesus with a scroll and a prepared lecture. He he didn't come with a speech. He didn't mull over every word and, articulate what he would say before he would say it in exactly the best way. He more got caught up in the moment. And he's watching the scoop and the singing and the singing and the praying and he's realizing all of these people don't yet see that what they're praying for, the life they're longing for, what they're asking God to do is already here. And so as that priest poured that water out, and the people are likely thinking, this is the last time for another year, another unanswered prayer. Jesus can't contain himself, and he yells, I'm the one you're looking for. Wouldn't that have been an amazing moment to see? Incredible. Do you hear what God's claiming, what Jesus is saying? When God provided water in the desert, that was a picture pointing forward to me. And this ritual you do every year is fulfilled in me. I am God among you. The Messiah is me. All your thirst can be quenched in me. In other words, to say that in our language, whatever you're looking for to fill you will not work unless it's Jesus. If you're truly thirsty for real life, not the cotton candy kind of life where it's fun going down and then you're sick afterwards, but a life that sticks with you. I am the spring of life. I give joy and meaning and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. You don't need to look anywhere else. That's what. That's what this... Jesus is claiming in this passage. Now let's consider how. Friends, the Bible says that our deepest problems and needs are internal, not external. It says that our problems spring from within, not from without. So we're not primarily victims of what other people have done to us, although we are that. We're primarily people who have experienced our own internal struggles And have chosen poorly. God is good. He's holy. He's pure. He's just. He's gracious. He's loving. He's merciful. He's in charge of everything there is. And yet he knows you. And he loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with each and every one of us. But the block that impedes that is our internal problem of of disobedience. It's instead of choosing to follow God... We look for life everywhere else. The theological word for that is sin. And this sin is so pervasive that it renders all of us helpless before God, unable to do anything spiritually good that would fix it. And yet while humanity was in this state, God sent Jesus. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, became a man, lived in perfect relationship with the Father, and then yielded his life. Why? So that his life could be exchanged for our sin. And so that our sin could be exchanged for his life. That's Christianity. Christianity at its very core is the message that God gave up his life. So that we could have it. Christianity is Jesus taking the death we deserve. And exchanging it for his eternal, perfect, joyful, unending relationship with the Father. Living Water. Jesus says if you want that kind of life, He can give it. He says He's not stingy with it. He says He's willing and ready and able now to give it. And He says not only does He just give it, but He sustains it through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God Himself living in you forever. Now, how does that life become yours? Well, what does verse 38 say? It gives a simple condition. Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me will be given the life we're all looking for. Coming to believe this and putting your trust in Jesus is what becoming Christian or becoming saved is all about. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you when that happens. So when you place your faith, trust, confidence, hope, everything and all your eggs in that basket, if you will, then God says you're delivered out of darkness into light. You're taken from death to life. What was old becomes new. And one of the crucial elements that I'm not sure we've talked about enough around here is that when that happens, God himself comes to reside inside of you. Now, in December, we said that That doesn't mean if you go to your doctor and say, the preacher says there's a spirit in me, give me a CAT scan or an MRI to prove it, that you'll see anything. You won't. We're talking about spiritual realities. But that that doesn't make it any less real. It is very real. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, for the rest of our series together, We're going to talk about the fears that keep us from experiencing this living water. Here's the job description of the Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. What is the Spirit's job in the life of a Christian? That's it. It's God... Pouring His perfect, endless, unconditional, eternal, all-captivating love into your very core over over and over and over and over and over again. And He's doing that through His Spirit who isn't going to be given but has already been given. It's an accomplished fact. Later in John chapter 17, Jesus put it like this. The Holy Spirit will take what is mine and will declare it to you. That's so beautiful. So the Spirit's main role in you, if you're a Christian, is to tell you how wonderful Jesus is and how fantastic what he has done for you is. So regardless of what life brings your way, God is in you. God is with you. God is whispering, I love you. It's a fact. You're mine. I care about you. You're secure. Life isn't about what you have or what you look like or whether she stays with you or not. Life is not about how good your grades are or how much you weigh or how many friends you have. God is constantly, quietly, lovingly pouring what Jesus has into our hearts every moment of every day. You know the Spirit is working in your life when you begin to see Jesus as more glorious than anything else. When satisfaction and joy come from your faith. When you find that God's love can overwhelm the feelings of rejection, of people-pleasing, of sleeping around, of being lonely because your spouse died or because you never had one, God's love is better than anything the world has to offer. And this, again, is simply given if you'll turn to Christ and believe in Him. Now, there's a whole lot more we could say there, but let's get to our third point. But! But I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus. And I've never experienced anything like you're talking about today. But, but I prayed a prayer to believe in Jesus. And I used to experience peace and joy, but not anymore. But, but I prayed that kind of prayer and then my life got more difficult. But I prayed that prayer and then I did this and this and this. And I cannot remember... The last time, I had any sense at all that God's with me. But but if Jesus promised that kind of life, then this thing would never have happened to me. Friends, if if you don't have any of those kinds of feelings, be careful because they're probably going to come. You see, the Christian life is not a life of an absence of suffering and hardship. It's a life of learning to persevere through those things and finding God in them. But so often, it doesn't feel that way. So why is it that some of us here have have heard the promise that Jesus has made of a particular quality of life? And we not only believe that Jesus came, died, rose again, but we've placed our trust in Him. And yet if we're honest, in the deepest, quietest recesses of our souls, it hasn't really worked. The, the life I've been talking about sounds really good, and it looks like other people have it, but not me. Have you been there? Why does that happen? Why can we feel spiritually dehydrated instead of being springs of living water? Well, there's a lot of reasons. And perhaps more than anything else, what I'd love to do today is say to you, it's normal to be there from time to time. It's normal to go through a drought. It's normal to feel like You've done what God said will bring you life. And you've tasted, but it didn't seem to last. Most every person in the Bible who walks with God has that experience. Why would we be any different? So let's not pretend. Let's be a church where we can be honest, where we can say, even with frustration... I'm not experiencing that. God can handle it. So we should be able to as well. That's part of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But I would like to consider with you just two reasons for why that might be the case in your life. First, maybe that's the case because you're not yet a Christian, maybe you've never really believed in Jesus. Maybe it's like you've been to uh, a nice restaurant. You're out for dinner. You've eaten a really good meal. You're about to burst. And then what does the waiter or waitress do? They bring you this tray, this insidious, awful tray. And it's full of stuff that looks good, right? It's full of yummy tasting desserts. But here's the weird thing. In most of the restaurants, what is that stuff actually? It's plastic. It's not real. And so if you were to grab one of those and set it down and take your fork and just not, you're going to be disappointed. Sometimes that happens with spiritual food. We, We hear, we see, we look at, but it turns out what people have promised us isn't the real thing. Or... It, it turns out that we were told, if, if I just think that that's true, that's all that's asked of me. My life doesn't really need to change. Or I've, I've, I really thought I took that dessert and and feasting on it, but maybe not. I was one of those uh, people. As a young child, I, I had an experience of lots of friends going down the aisle in a church to talk to the preacher and stand in the front and get a packet on the back and dumped in the water and everybody cheers. What kind of child wouldn't want that, right? So I went through this experience and then came to find as a teenager, I took off a piece of plastic dessert and have not eaten the real thing. I don't have living water. I have a a concept of, but not an experience in. Maybe that's you. And if so, you might have been hearing this the first time today. You've heard it longer than I've been alive. It makes no difference either way. The offer is still there for you. God has living water for you if you will believe in him. But there's another reason. Maybe you've done that. You've taken the real thing, but fear still rules in your heart. Maybe Jesus is Lord and Savior, but dadgummit, fear continues to climb up on that throne and say, no, I'm in charge. Christian, if that's you, the Spirit can provide you with the life you long for. Jesus isn't a liar. What he said is true. And yet our fears create dams, if you will, that, that impede that flowing of living water. Fear keeps us from experiencing the life that God has already given to us. And so what happens is we, we beg and we plead with God to do something he's already done, to give us something that's already been given to us. And what we need to do is say, what's impeding, what's damming up, what's blocking that life that he's already given me? So for the next two months, all we're going to do is we're going to get together and we're going to look at a fear, a different fear each week, and then call each other back to the living water that's provided for us in Jesus Christ. Sound good? If there's any of you back next week, we'll know that it is. Now, here's the weird thing, and I can't talk long about this. Just introduce it. The only thing that trumps fear is a greater fear. So when you think about fear and you begin praying about that and considering in your own life, in the life of those in your gospel community, people you're discipling, Friends you're bringing along who are not yet believers. And you think about where do I battle and struggle with fear? The most common command in the scriptures is fear not. And yet the same book also tells us the only way to fear not is to fear. The only way to fear, the only way not to fear lesser things is to fear something or someone greater. Now that is confusing. How does fear trump fear? Well, it does. Because it turns out an awe, a respect, a reverence, a submission to God. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over and over is the only thing that conquers fear. That's it. So not a fear of punishment, not a fear of retribution, not a fear of anger, but a respect, an awe, a God, you're in charge, and I'm not. That's the only thing that beats fear. If you know that today, then it's with confidence that you can go to God And confess your fear and find anew his love for you. And if you're here today and you know that you've never really come to Jesus for life, what a way to start a new year. To say, God, I've not ever turned to you, believed in you, put my hope in you. And I want to do that today. There is no magic formula for that. There is you expressing your heart, your thoughts to God, turning from sin receiving the life that he has for you you can do that right where you are and if you're saved and you're not experiencing this kind of life then would you before you leave this room do something bold and that's be honest with god and then go to a fellow brother and sister in christ and ask him or her would you walk with me over the next month two months help me by praying for me that I would understand where am I bowing to a lesser fear instead of to the God who's promised life? I believe God has something big for us in this. And so let's ask him to do his work. Father, we're not people who deserve living water, life, your life in us. And yet... It is so clearly what you do promise us. And the offer is universal. The offer to come to you, to receive from you, to be given in exchange for our sin, your life. And there are certainly elements to that that for us that live in a scientific, open books and see and comprehend and grasp every element of everything before we'll believe it. We have to lay that down because Christianity is rooted in actual events that happened in the past, but that doesn't mean we can replicate and unpack and understand and repeat every element of who you are. So help us get past our arrogance to believe in your scriptures. Because the reality is all around us every day, both in our own hearts and in the eyes of every person we lock eyes with, is a human being that needs your living water. So I pray for my friends here today who have never experienced what we're talking about. God, would you cause their eyes to be opened in the gospel to make sense that they would receive you now. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters in the room who have come to you and believed and placed trust in you and you've given them your life, I would be at the front of the line of people saying, yes, but it doesn't feel like that every day. And is it not true then? And Lord, where fear stands in our way, we pray that you would enable us to see that and to give those fears over to you now. And then to believe you enough to go to a brother or sister before we leave this room and say, would you pray with me and for me and walk with me through this series? Because I want that life that Jesus promised. Father, our passion as a church is not that we would only believe in particular things, but that we'd be known as a people where you are.